Bow with me as we ask the Spirit to make his word alive to us. Father, we are now to the place where we open the word of God for serious study together. And in order for this study to be fruitful, your spirit must be our teacher. He must open our eyes to the truths. He must apply them deeply in our hearts in faith that we might believe and act as your spirit would instruct us from his word here this morning. And so, Father, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, history is absolutely replete with examples of brave men and women who have stood firm and resisted the the fierce and ruthless enemies that have come against them. One such example that I want to recount for you this morning as we begin together happened in a narrow coastal plain in the year 480 B.C. Now, that's a long time ago. That's 2,500 years ago. But 2,500 years ago in this narrow coastal pass, a massive army was repulsed temporarily by a, a small band of valiant men. Ten years before, when Darius had suffered a humiliating defeat by the Athenians at the Battle of Marathon, the Persians spent that next 10 years rebuilding their armies for the invasion of Greece. And after 10 years, Darius' son Xerxes gathered together his army, and the, and the estimates on this army are all over the place. And so I'm going to place it at a million men, and that sort of falls now in the middle of the estimates. So a million-man army was conveyed across the straits from Turkey and into Greece. Xerxes is also known to us as Ahasuerus, the king of the book of Esther. Most believe that actually the book of Esther occurs following this military campaign that began here in 480 B.C. As you can imagine, to bring a million-man army in an invasion force doesn't come by a surprise. It doesn't come as a surprise to the, to the country being invaded. They know it's coming. And yet the Greek city-states were, were having difficulty getting themselves organized for their own defense. So a small group of Greek warriors marched out to meet the invasion that they might fight a delaying action that would provide enough time for the defenses to be organized back home. King Leonidas and his 300 Spartan soldiers were accompanied by several thousand other Greek troops, and they arrived at the Pass of Thermopylae. 
And there they set up a defensive position. They chose wisely because they set up at what's known as the hot gates. It's a narrow choke point where the the cliffs are high to the left and the Gulf of Maltus is to the right. and, And at its narrowest point, it's only 15 meters wide, less than 50 feet between the water and the hills, the cliffs. And there they set up their defensive position. Prior to the battle, which was a three-day affair, Xerxes sent messengers to Leonidas and, and demanded that the Greeks surrender their arms, to which Leonidas replied, Molon Labe, come and take them. The first day of the battle, the Persians marched their armies into this choke point, and they were slaughtered. The Greeks held. The narrow pass nullified the overwhelming numbers of Persian troops. The next day, the Persians attacked again and were repulsed again. But sometime during that second day, a Greek trader went to the Persian king and told him that there was a kind of a narrow secret pass through the mountains that would eventuate in the rear of the Greek defenders. Becoming aware that the Persians were now in the process of encircling Leonidas and his troops, the Greek king sent home those that remained, and he he stayed with his 300 Spartans and about 700 Thespians to cover the withdrawal of the rest of the Greek troops. On the third day, the Spartans were surrounded and annihilated by the Persians. A monument erected at that place bore the following inscription. O stranger, tell the Spartans that we lie here obedient to their word. In other words, we stood fast. We stood fast. Open your personal copy of the Word of God to the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We are returning for a second time to This section, verses 10 through 20, which is the final teaching section of this book, following Paul's instructions here in this section, he will rapidly close out the book with some final matters and be at the end of this really great letter. Paul's final instruction to the Ephesian believers concerns the topic of spiritual warfare because they, like us, or I probably should say us, like them, are engaged in a great spiritual conflict, a great spiritual conflict. It began in the garden. It is Satan's long war against God, and it continues to rage. 
Now, even though Christ has defeated the demon or the devil and his demons through his cross, and they are a defeated foe, they are nonetheless still active and dangerous and have not surrendered. They have not surrendered. Now, we don't talk much here in this church about demons and so forth, and the reason we don't is because the Scriptures don't spend tons of time talking about them, in particular instructional letters to the church. So I was saying to somebody the other day, you, you read the Gospels and you see a lot of demonic activity. And even in the early part of the book of Acts, but as the book of Acts proceeds and, and the church is rolling out over that next 30 years, the demonic activity declines. You get to the New Testament epistles, and there are not that many passages that deal with Satan and the demons. But he is real, and his minions are active. And if you are a child of God this morning, you are a target. You are a target. Now, as if it's not enough that our flesh and its proclivity to sin were not there tripping us up, right? Paul says that we have a spiritual enemy. We are under a spiritual assault with an unseen enemy. As I told you last time, in this passage, verses 10 through 20, four times Paul uses the word histemi, or a derivative of it, a word that means stand. Four times he says that in this passage. Verse 11, verse 13, twice, and then in verse 14. So it is the theme of the passages that we are to stand or to resist this onslaught. And, and by this use of this word, Paul is conveying the need for the believer to, to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord by not retreating in the face of the demonic onslaught that has been brought against them. We noted also last time that back in chapter 4 and verse 24, where Paul says we are to put on the new man or the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, that that theme is picked up again here in this final section. And really, the, the armor of God, which is what this section sort of is probably entitled in your Bible, is, a, is an explanation of what it means to put on the new man, put on the new self. To live for Christ. Let me read the text before we dive in here. Finally, Paul says, finally, and of course that means he's getting ready to wrap things up here. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, 
Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. In these verses, we find Paul's three-part strategy for standing firm in the Christian faith. Four times we're told to stand firm, and there's a, a strategy that will enable us to do that. And Paul lays it out for us here, and there are three parts to it. Now, we looked in detail last week at the first of those parts in verses 10 through 13, and it was to stand firm by perceiving your enemy. To stand firm by perceiving your enemy enemy. Now, we don't have time to go back through all of that again, and I would refer you to the website where you could hear or watch that sermon. But just to review a few things under that heading in verses 10 through 13. Notice in verse 10 that Paul begins here with a command or an imperative, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we noted it's a passive voice in the imperative here. And so it would be understood to be something along the lines of be made strong or be strengthened. To be made strong or to be strengthened. In other words, the Ephesians were not to go out and try to strengthen themselves, but rather to lay hold of the power that comes from an external source, that external source being Christ the Lord, right? Finally, be made strong, not in yourself, but in the Lord and in the strength of his might, or by his mighty strength. And I took you to chapter 1, where at the end of chapter 1, you'll remember, Paul prays that marvelous prayer that the Ephesians, their eyes would be open, that they might understand the, the reality of the resurrected and ascended Christ who is at the right hand of the Father over all do, and has dominion over all of creation, including the demonic world who are our enemies. So be strengthened by, in the strength of the Lord, who is in sovereign rule over all of these that have come against us. Make use of the great power that God has put at our disposal through the resurrected and victorious Christ. And the means by which they are to do that, down in verse 11, is to put on the armor that God supplies. That's what it means, the armor of God. It is the, the armor that God 
supplies. That's the means by which we are to be strengthened or made strong in the power of the Lord to stand firm against Satan and his minions. And the reason that we need to lay hold of this mighty strength of Christ is because Satan and his demons are very cunning. They're very cunning, and they're very deadly, and they are actively engaged in an attempt to destroy us, verses 11 and 12. The schemes of the devil, you see it at the end of verse 11, plural, many of them. Paul goes on there in verse 12 that our our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our struggle is not conducted at the human level. Certainly there are human authorities who are enemies of the church, and historically we can look back on that and see those that have sought to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, but we must understand that behind them lays the power of the evil one. And last week, as we noted, beyond that, there is the individual attacks of the evil one upon you and I, and he uses a multitude of means by which he seeks to set us aside in our Christian faith. Not that we would lose our salvation, not that we would you know, somehow not be Christian anymore, but our effectiveness for the Lord, our testimony for the Lord, the, the, the uh, enjoyment even of our Christian life can be seriously mangled through the schemes of the devil unless we put on the full armor of God. Now, last week, I went through and, and I gave you a whole, I think there were 14 of them, just different suggestions of, of various schemes, and, and we tried to lodge and, and locate each one of those coming right out of the scriptures themselves. And, and that's just a bare sampling, a bare sampling. And it was, it was designed to get you to think about some possibilities of how you may or may not be under attack. Now, like any battle, the, the time to prepare for the battle is not when the bullets start flying. The Spartans weren't able to stand against the the weight of of the Persian Empire by marching to to the hot gates and then saying, okay, now what are we going to do? Like a playground football team, right? You go out for a pass and, you know, go 10 feet and turn around and I'll hit you, okay? That's that's not how it's done. The Spartans trained. They They were an elite fighting force. They prepared ahead of time for the battle. They were well armored. And they stood, and they stood in the gap. And so the time to prepare is not when the fighting begins, but but well in advance of that fighting. And that's what Paul's basically saying here, verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. In other words, having done everything, having put on the armor of God, you have done what needs to be done, that armor put on and then empowered through prayer, and we'll get to that here when we get to it. Then stand firm. Be ready for the fight and stand firm. So, stand firm by perceiving your enemy, understanding your foe. Second, 
Secondly, this morning, stand firm by putting on your armor. Stand firm by putting on your armor, verses 14 through 17. Now, in these verses here, Paul references six items. It's generally called armor, and we don't want to quibble about whether a sword is a piece of armor or not. That's not important. Paul lays out six items. I'm going to call them armor. Six items of armor here. And interestingly, these items are, are very closely connected to some of the prophecies of Isaiah. If you look in the cross, if you have a study Bible, you look in your, you know, your marginal notes, your cross-references, you'll see that. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, Isaiah 59, verse 17. So these, this, these words of Isaiah are very much in, in Paul's heart and mind as he's, he's writing here to the Ephesian believers, and, and he's drawing on that. And in those prophecies, uh, it speaks of the armor uh, that belongs to Yahweh, Yahweh's armor. Or it speaks of the, of the armor of Yahweh's Messiah. And what Paul does here is, is basically what he says is, is that God has now given God and his Messiah have now given that armor to the believer for their protection. So when we put on the armor of God, we are, we are putting on the, the, the very armor that God himself and God's Messiah wears. Now we're speaking metaphorically, of course. Okay? It's, it's metaphorical language here. God does not run around with a helmet on. Okay? Just to make sure we understand that. But we bear the responsibility to put it on, hence the imperative in verse 10. Okay? So it is God's good work done for us through Christ, but we have a responsibility here to put it on. So whose responsibility is the sanctification of the believers, God's or the believer? Yes. 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 Okay. Now, I think it's also important to note that at the time Paul's writing this letter, this is what's called a prison epistle, and Paul writes this letter while under house arrest. The end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verses 30-31, uh, the, the book of Acts closes out, and we're told that Paul is under uh, two-year house arrest in Rome. Okay? We also, if we combine his, his uh, words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 13, I'm not going to turn you to any of these, but just, you know, mark it down, you want to look it up, whatever. But if we kind of bring that together, it, it, it's... It, there, Paul says that the whole Praetorian Guard has heard about the gospel through his imprisonment. That's basically what he says. So it's pretty likely that as Paul's writing this, he, he has... God's armor, as, as the prophet Isaiah had spoken about in his mind, and he also likely has the, the image before him of a Roman legionnaire. I mean, it was not uncommon to see legionnaires throughout the empire. I mean, they're the ones who kept the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And so those guarding him in house arrest, they didn't carry shields around. I mean, that's a battlefield implement. But it certainly was not anything that was uncommon or that the readers of that day would not have been able to easily identify 
what it was, okay? So I think Paul's using that as well, the, the metaphors there, to, to communicate this important uh, final words for the believer. Now, grammatically, okay, we need to make a couple of grammatical points. Grammatically here, the, the first four pieces of armor are the means by which the command to stand firm is accomplished. Okay, we're to stand firm. How? What's the means by which we stand firm? It is these first four pieces of armor. In other words, we stand firm by putting on the armor. Next week, we'll talk about the other two pieces, okay? So, let's bore down here a little bit, verse 14. Stand firm, therefore. Okay? Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, verse 14, or as the ESV would translate it, having fastened on the belt of truth. So, the first item of armor that the believer must strap on is truth, Paul says. The first thing to be strapped on is truth. Truth. Truth is that which is reliable, that which is trustworthy. Truth lies at the heart of the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is the embodiment of truth, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So truth lies at the very heart of the gospel because Jesus is the embodiment of truth and, the, and Jesus lies at the heart of the gospel. So it should not be surprising that, that Paul would list truth as the first piece of armor because truth is foundational to the Christian life. Truth is foundation. You know what? That's what makes Christians so hard to get along with from the pagan point of view. Is because we always are insisting that there's truth out there, that there's reality, that not all paths lead to the top of the mountain and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And it only matters if you're sincere and whatever. And we say, no, there's only one way to God. And, and that insistence that there's only one way to God and, and Jesus is the way and Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. It sets up these, these um, clashes that, that are not reconcilable and lies behind the, the hostilities that are brought against the Christian church, okay? I mean, we stand for truth because God is true, though every man be found a liar. Now, notice here in, in Ephesians... And you probably already figured this out if you've looked at your watch. There's no way this guy's going to make it through this whole section. <laughs> so don't worry, okay? This is worth it. If we look at the book, we, we will see the theme of truth. For example, back in chapter 1, verse 13, the, the gospel is called truth. Paul begins way back there. And the gospel is called truth. Verse 13, in him, that is in Christ, you also, he's speaking to the Gentiles here, after listening to the message of truth, you see it? After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 
The message of truth. What is the message of truth? The gospel of your salvation. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay. So the gospel is called truth. It is truth. Over in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, we see the same thing. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Right? So we have been taught in Jesus. Why? We have been taught the gospel, and the gospel is truth. We have been taught the truth. The gospel is some of the most amazing truth claims. that we are called upon in faith to embrace. The gospel is truth. Furthermore, Paul says, truth is a characteristic of God. Same chapter, chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Put on the new self, put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Truth is a characteristic of God. Therefore, those who are made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, recreated in the likeness of God, through the gospel, are to be truth speakers. We are to be truth speakers. That's why there's no place for lying in the Christian faith. Satan is the father of lies. God is true. And so his children are to reflect who he is. Chapter 5, verse 9. Though the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. The fruit of the light is truth, characteristic of God. Truth is also a defense against the devil's schemes. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Paul says there, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Who does that sound like? But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So truth is a defense against the devil's schemes. Beloved, truth is like kryptonite to Satan. Truth is like kryptonite to Satan. It repels him. It weakens him. It will destroy him. Just as light drives out darkness, so truth is the basis of of a sturdy defense against the devil's schemes. That's why Paul says back here in verse 14, stand firm, therefore, the means by which first is to put on truth. Put on truth. Okay? Second, same verse, 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The next piece of armor Paul talks about here is a, is a breastplate, right? What's a breastplate? It was a, it was a metal plate here that would protect the vital organs of the torso. Okay? 
Now, grammatically here, the the breastplate is righteousness. Or it says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, you could easily translate, having put on the breastplate, which is righteousness. Okay, so the breastplate that protects the the organs, and again, we're, we're using metaphorical language here, right? So in the metaphor, the breastplate is righteousness that protects. So, some commentators, they, they believe that Paul is talking about the imputed righteousness that is ours when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That, that his righteousness, God imputes or credits to our account, Romans 3 and 22, the basis of faith. And some believe that that's what Paul's talking about here, but, but I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think because of the way he uses righteousness in this epistle, and he combines it, for example, back over in chapter 4, verse 24, he combines it with holiness. And in chapter 5, verse 9, we've looked at these already, but he combines it with goodness and truth. I think he's referring to an ethical quality here. Okay, that's the point. I don't think he's talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ as being the breastplate. I believe what he is saying is that the breastplate, which is righteousness, is that ethical quality of righteousness that a child of God has and demonstrates. Yeah, but there's no unrighteous, no, not one. That's what Paul says in Romans, right? That's true. Yeah, Joseph was a righteous man, the Scripture says, right? Remember that? So it depends on the context in which you're talking. Okay? In an absolute sense, no one is righteous like God is righteous. And it's God requires righteousness. And thus we must have a, an alien righteousness, an imputed righteousness, a, a, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account in order to, to be welcomed into the family of God. But as children of God, as sons of the Father, who are being conformed into the image of Christ, there is a, there is a sense in which there is a, a, an ethical righteousness about our lives, or should be. We should be righteous people. We could say it this way. It's, it's moral integrity. How's that? If I use that terminology, that's better, huh? So what Paul is saying here is the the breastplate to protect us against the schemes of the devil is a life of moral integrity. Now, it's not a moral integrity brought by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. We already said that back in verse 20, or or verse 10, right? So it's it's, um, tapping into the power of Christ to live a righteous life. It's putting on the new man, putting on the new self. Not the old man who lived this way, but the new man who lives like this. If, if lying is what used to characterize you know, your life as the old man, then you know, the opposite character of that is truth. And so you are a truth speaker. That what it, that's what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to live with integrity. Okay, Back in chapter 4, you can go back and look at those sermons. Paul gives a bunch of examples. Not this, but this. Not this, but this. I think that's what he's talking about here. So we... Here it is, okay, money statement. We resist the devil's schemes by living with moral integrity. We expose ourselves to devastating wounds when we do not. Say it again for you. 
We resist the devil's schemes by living with moral integrity, but we expose ourselves to devastating wounds when we do not. Okay? That makes sense? So, what does it mean to live with integrity? What does it mean to live with integrity? If this is, if this is the defense against the schemes of the devil part of the defense, then what does it mean? What does it look like to have a life of integrity? Well, I think we can boil it down to a pretty simple statement. Living with integrity means you have nothing to hide. Living with integrity means you have nothing to hide. In other words, you are the same person privately as you appear to be publicly. Same person. So here's the spirit-empowered diagnostic question to ask ourselves, or at least one. Can someone go through your monthly expenditures? In other words, how you spend your money. Can somebody go through that and, and look and see how you expend your money? Can they go through your online browsing history? In other words, can they, can they look at the websites that you have gone to and go to, where you spend your time? Can they go through your text messages, all those text messages? Can they, could someone look at all of them? Or your emails? Could they read all your emails and your social media posts? And having done all of that, could they conclude that you are the same person Monday through Saturday as you appear to be on Sunday? That's what it means to live with integrity. That's what it means to have a life of integrity. In other words, what you look like in one setting is who you are in the others. When no one else is looking, what am I like? And Paul says, we are to put on a life of integrity, put on righteousness, okay? Put on righteousness. This will help protect us against the schemes of the evil one. Right? Just illustrated back in chapter 4 and verses 26 and 27. Be angry, yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil what? A foothold, he says. An opportunity. So when our life is not a life of integrity, when, the, when we're living two lives, we are providing a, a, a breach in the arm. It's like we're going into combat, and, and we say, I don't want, any, what do I want this for. I don't want this breastplate. Out of here. It's too heavy to carry around anyway. And we expose ourselves to grievous injury. Verse 15. Uh, verse 15 is a good verse, but we're coming back to it next week. There's not time. We're going to take communion together. 
Yeah, I'm going to land the airplane. I just got to figure out how I'm going to do it. Okay? There's two ways to land an airplane. One is long and slow with a nice glide path. The other is to come on really hot with tail hook hanging and hope you catch the cables. Okay? That's kind of where we are. So, let's just say this. The devil is out to get us. Okay? But, but Paul would not have us live in terrifying fear of that reality. Now, we're not like those who foolishly seek to address him and rebuke him and cast him out and do all kinds of nonsense and nuttiness. Okay? He's dangerous. But we're not to live in, in the kind of, of fear of him that would paralyze us. Christ has conquered him. And in Christ, you have conquered him. But there is a mopping up action going on. And if we are to stand firm in that mopping up action and not be a casualty pushed off to the side, then we must put on the armor of God. We must put on the new man, the, the new self. We must begin to live out in the power of the Spirit the life of Christ that is in us. Okay? That's the message, really. That's the message. Okay? Not by my own strength but by relying upon the power of him who has conquered all and freely gives it to me and to you if you're a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we didn't get as far as originally intended, Lord, but may your spirit use what we have covered and apply it appropriately and Enable us to just begin to think on these things. Father, I pray that this week, even for my brothers and sisters here, that you would help them to make some time during the week to review this passage and to think about it a little as they consider their own situation, recognizing that they are in a battle. And Father, we, we need to be prepared for that battle. And so help us in that now, even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.